Welcome to Current Affairs. My name is Nathan Robinson. I am the editor-in-chief of Current Affairs magazine. My guest today is Professor Rashid Halidi. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's also the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He is the author of many books, including The Iron Cage, a story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood, and most recently, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, a history of settler colonialism and resistance, 1917 to 2017. Professor Holiday, thank you so much for joining us on Current Affairs. Well, thank you so much for having me. We, we've just witnessed this month a new airstrikes on Gaza, uh, justified on the grounds of uh, preemption, killed a number of children. Every year, it seems, we see new horrific violence erupting, um, especially in Gaza. I think that at this point, so much, so many people watch events unfold without any sense whatsoever of the context. And I, one of the things that comes across well in your book is that in order to really understand what is going on in Palestine, we really have to go back 100 years. We have, to, we have no idea what we are seeing unless we grasp how the situation came about over the course of a century. And so I wondered if we could start with Palestine at the turn of the 20th century, as you do in the book, perhaps, because I, I don't think, I think hardly any of our American audience probably really understands what Palestine was like at that period. So perhaps you could paint us a little picture of you know, what Palestine was like at the beginning Right. And I think you're right to suggest we start with the history because we're often told, oh, let's forget the history. Well, they want us to forget the history because without it, you can't understand what's going on now. And they can put all kinds of silly ideas into our heads, making deserts bloom, and only democracy in the Middle East and that sort of nonsense. Um, so the history is, is, is simple, actually. Uh, people always say, oh, it's very complex. It's not complex at all. This was a society, part of a, a number of societies, Arabic speaking in the Middle East, made up of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, uh, who identified in different ways, but whose lingua franca was Arabic and whose governmental language was, under the Ottomans, Turkish. It was a society in rapid development. Education was developing rapidly, even though the uh, literacy rate was still not very high. Uh, roads, air, uh, roads uh, railways, uh, electrification and so on were just developing at the turn of the century. Um, and it was a society that uh, had been and was uh, relatively peaceful for a very, very long period of time. There, there is not a, a, a history of violence in Palestine between Muslims and Jews or Muslims and Christians or, or in fact, any of the, of the various groups in, 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 in Palestine at the time, nor had there been for several hundred years. So this was a developing society. Um, backwards in many ways, largely rural, um, with an upper class that uh, monopolized power and was well connected to the Ottoman ruling authorities. Um, but one that, as I, as I said, and as I point out in the book, was actually developing rather rapidly. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you say th that it was a society of, of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, but what, I mean, the, the demographics were not equal. Right. Before, during, and after World War I when we have relatively good statistics, the Jewish population of Palestine was in the realm of 6%, 7%, maybe 8%. Um, there was a larger proportion of Christians and the overwhelming majority were Muslims. And almost all of that population, uh, certainly Muslim and Christian, but also a large part 
of the Jewish population were Arabic speaking. The Jewish population spoke several other languages. Some were immigrants and spoke their languages of origin. Many were beginning to speak Hebrew. Most of them used Hebrew as a sacred language, but their lingua franca for most of the existing population in Palestine was Arabic. Um, and many of them felt themselves part of that society, even though they were distinct in religious terms. This, of course, just to add one thing, this is before the rise of modern political Zionism. We're talking about the indigenous Jewish population of Palestine at the time. Uh, uh, immigrants were arriving, but they were still a minority. Uh, and these were people who were motivated by political ideas, mainly Zionism. Well, I want to get to the effect of Zionism on Palestine in the in the early 20th century. You have um, that you quote from that extraordinary letter from I think your your, your great 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 uncle was the mayor of Jerusalem who wrote to you know Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, and said maybe that you have a historical association with this lad, but. Uh, you know, this, this prophetic letter kind of warning that Zionism is probably going to lead to a disaster for Palestine. Right. Well, he was he was an interesting character. His name was Yusuf the Al-Khaldi. He had been, as you say, mayor of Jerusalem. He was also the elected deputy for Jerusalem um, in the 1878 Ottoman parliament. Um, and he was an educated man. He had he had studied and taught in Europe. He taught in Vienna at the Royal Imperial University. He spoke Arabic, English, French, um, and he was fully aware uh, of what political Zionism entailed. It entailed turning an Arab country into a Jewish state. That was the title of, of Herzl's famous monograph, Der Judenstadt, the Jewish state, or the state of the Jews, depending on how you choose to translate it. He knew about those writings. He knew about the first Zionist Congress in 1897. So when he writes to Herzl in 1898, he's fully aware of what political Zionism entails. It's not just a historic connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, which he talks about in the letter and admits and, 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 and celebrates. But it is rather a replacement of the existing population with a new population. And he says, uh, Zionism in and of itself is fine, but you can't do it here. There is a people here that will not be supplanted. Um, and so, as you say, I think the letter is prophetic, and I, I choose to open the book uh, with that letter and then with Herzl's response. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's not. Uh, he doesn't heed the warning. Needless to say, well, he he does what uh, uh, Zionist leaders have done ever since. He acts as if the Arabs are irrelevant and or are fools, uh, and he uh, essentially uh, blows Yusuf the Khaldi off. He just tells him, "Oh, have no fear, everything's fine," uh, and he says something rather interesting. Uh, at no stage in his letter did Yusuf the Khaldi talk about the displacement or the replacement or the elimination of the Palestinians. He said, you can't do this here because there's an existing people. And in his letter, strangely, Herzl says, we, who would have, who would say, I mean, there's no idea of replacing this people. And then you go back to Herzl's diary. And in fact, he is thinking about spiriting the population across the frontiers. <laughs> so it's an, unasked, it's an unasked question, which Herzl answers. Um, uh, which I think is very revelatory. So, so your great, great, great uncle gets the reply and goes, I, I didn't ask you about replacement. <laughs> exactly. No, but this exactly. is so fascinating is when you go back to a, a lot of the early Zionist discourse, yeah, in the romantic imagination, it's a it's a desolate desert uh, that, uh, you know, that can be, that can be colonized with no problems. But... 
a lot of the early Zionists pr admit pretty much openly. They say, well, look, uh, we're trying to colonize, which is their word, a country that has people in it. We need to have a discussion about how we're going to get rid of them. Well, there, there, are, there are two sets of, of Zionists insofar as how they regard the Arabs. There are those who, as you say, um, are blunt about it. Uh, people like Zev Jabotinsky, who was the leader of the revisionist strain of Zionism, which has pretty much dominated Israeli politics since 1977. Every prime minister, with one or two exceptions since 1977, was a follower of Jabotinsky. And he was very blunt about it. He says, yes, we're going to replace these people. And we need an iron wall, meaning the British, to help us to do this. Um, and uh, we are colonizing, and all colonizers face resistance. Every people resists colonization. So Jabotinsky is very blunt about it. Most or many other Zionist leaders, I think, were either deceptive or were deceiving themselves in pretending that somehow this could be arranged without eliminating the existing population one way or another, removing uh, or driving them out, uh, whatever. And that was crucial to their propaganda abroad, because if they said, we're going to go in there and there's going to, we're going to face enormous resistance and these people will fight like hell uh, to retain uh, their country and they have a national aspirations, it would have been a little harder to raise money and, and engender support for the Zionist project. So people like Jabotinsky, who were in the minority, um, were, were sort of pushed to the sideline uh, by the leaders of the mainstream Zionist movement, which for whom it was really important to sell this to British and American statesmen, European statesmen, and to the Jewish communities the world over as a project that could be done without violence, as a project that could be done uh, without replacing an existing people, either by saying they're, no real, they're, not, they're not a real people, they're just Bedouins or they have no roots here, uh, or by ignoring their existence. A people without a land for a land without a people was a slogan that many Zionist leaders repeated. Israel Zangwill is the most noted. Uh, of course, there were people on the land, and uh, and uh, people like Jabotinsky admitted it. Now, the the reason that you say it couldn't have been done without uh, expulsion or without ethnic cleansing, uh, just to clarify, this is because the the political Zionist project was, as you say, to impose a an ex, a a Jewish state, meaning a state that. You know, what, what, could you maybe describe what it is about the plan to build a Jewish state that inherently kind of required the, this uh, cleansing project? It's actually very simple. You have an overwhelming Arab majority. You either drive them out or you flood them with new immigrants so that you have a Jewish majority. And so you completely transform the nature of the country, either by massive immigration, which creates a new Jewish majority. And then you have an Arab minority in a Jewish state, a Jewish majority state or uh, by driving as many as possible of the existing population out. Um, the objective was not to live as a minority in Palestine. The Arabs are a majority in Palestine right up to 1948. 65% of the population of the country was Arab in 1948, when the, and a year after the United Nations gave most of the country to a 35 or 33% Jewish minority. Um, you, you, you would have to either have, as I've said, had massive immigration, which never never really fully developed, or you had to plan to get rid of them. Those are the only two ways you could create a Jewish majority state. And the objective was to leave a situation as a minority in Europe and to create a new Jewish majority uh, political entity, a Jewish state. And so 
Uh, Herzl lays it out in 1897, and that is the objective of Zionism to this day. And you go to the writings of uh, David Ben-Gurion, for instance, and, and he said, you know, they, they sort of at the point at which it's acknowledged that immigration is not going to, and immigration alone is not going to create. And then there's a pretty open acknowledgement that, well, uh, we need to, what is what is euphemistically called transfer. We're going to have to transfer uh, some people, meaning eth- ethnic, but I, I don't know how you could interpret that other than as ethnic cleansing. It, there's no other way to describe it, but as ethnic cleansing. Uh, uh, transfer is, a, is an Orwellian euphemism which Zionism used, appropriated and used throughout. Um, the idea was not people were being uprooted and forced to leave. They were simply being transferred from place to place. Um, it was a nice, neat, clean way of saying, kicking these people out of their homes and stealing their property, which is actually what happened. And, and this helps us to understand the development of Palestinian resistance to this project, which is today obviously characterized a lot of the time as irrational, based on irrational anti-Semitism. But as you know, as you, as you point out, when we understand the history of the development of this resistance, um, it is kind of, and again, you know, you have early Zionists on the record going, well, I don't know how you expect them to react. Uh, you know, they're going to react the same way that every indigenous uh, population reacts when there is a colonial project to impose minority rule. I mean, it's as absurd to call the Palestinian resistance to having their country taken away, being expelled and having their property stolen as to describe Algerian resistance to the French as anti-Francism or South African resistance to the Boers as anti-Boerism or Native American resistance to, as anti-Americanism. Yeah, they were anti- <laughs> right. <laughs> They're very anti-American. <laughs> anti-colonial resistance by an indigenous people uh, in peril of losing uh, their their homeland and their property, and in many cases, their lives. Um, it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. That's one of the most vicious canards uh, around to claim that any form of resistance to colonialism, wherever it may be, is motivated by some kind of racist uh, ideology is absurd. I mean, the Irish were not anti-British. The Irish were simply opposed to British colon- English colonialism. Uh, same with other colonized peoples. You know, so I, I'm, I'm dwelling on this. I mean, you, you know, your book focuses on the, the whole century of the, these various um, important events in the war against the Palestinians. But I, I'm dwelling on what I think is one of the most important takeaways of the book, which is to understand that the, the development of the modern state of Israel, which is a recent development, right, founded within the lifetimes of people who are still alive today, is a colonial right. project backed by, you know, backed crucially by the British. Wouldn't have occurred. Wouldn't have. Wouldn't have ever come into being without, uh, you know. Right. I mean, Zionism is is a unique colonial project. Uh, it's easy to say uh, this is a form of colonialism or settler colonialism, which it it. It, it, was, it, it, it self-described itself as. Um, early, the early Zionists were not ashamed to use the word colonial or colonialism. Uh, the Jewish colonization agency was one of the main financing arms of the settlement project. Uh, so that, that, that's incontrovertible. Um, it was also, however, a national project. It was not an emanation of a mother country, the way that uh, English settlers in North America were or in Australia were, or French settlers uh, in Algeria were. 
uh, it was a separate independent national project, which without the backing of great European colonial powers would never have been able to succeed um, and which, which operated in terms of settler colonialism, but which had a national uh, 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 aspect to it. And it's very important to understand it as being very different in that respect from South Africa or Algeria or North America or Australasia or Kenya or other settler colonial projects. One of the charges that is brought up often is that uh, while Jewish settlers in um, Palestine constituted and were trying to establish a nation state, part of why the Palestinian resistance or the Palestinian demand for uh, self-governance was not legitimate was that the Palestinians supposedly were not a nation. Sometimes this is, uh, they go so far as to, as uh, Golda Meir did say, the Palestinians didn't exist at all. Uh, but usually it's uh, it's phrased, well, the Palestinians may have existed as individual people, but did not have a collective identity. Uh, how do you uh, think about, uh, you know, how Palestinian identity developed and, and when and how it changed over time? Yeah, no, that's an important question because most modern national identities uh, in the overwhelming majority of countries in the world are like Palestinian identity and like Israeli identity, um, extremely recent. Uh, the great-great-grandparents of every Israeli never thought of themselves as Israelis. There was no Israel. There was no idea of a nation state encompassing all Jews, which is what Zionism uh, involves, uh, in 1800. Nobody thought of that. It's a recent modern national identity, as is Palestinian, as is Arab, as is all of these have roots in earlier forms of identity. So there's a Jewish idea of peoplehood. There's an Arab idea of peoplehood. There are linguistic bonds. There are religious religious elements that come into modern nationalism. But modern nation state nationalism is a very, very recent phenomenon. Uh, I am right now in France. The part of France I am in was not part of the French monarchy uh, until the 15th century. They spoke a different language. Uh, uh, I believe it's Montesquieu or one of the great French philosophers came down to X and he said, these people are savages. They don't speak French. They spoke Provençal. Um, the unification of France is a 19th century project, a French revolutionary and 19th century project. And the creation of Frenchmen out of peasants is a result of education and the army. There's a great book on that in the 19th century. So modern national identities have roots that go back, of course, whether we're talking about Israeli or, or Palestinian or Arab or whatever. But they are all recently, relatively recent, i.e. the last couple of centuries in almost every case, certainly most parts of the world, including the one we are talking about, including Israelis and Palestinians. Of course, one of the great successes of Zionism is to hitch modern political Zionism, a 120-year-old phenomenon, to the, the biblical narrative and to uh, Jewish peoplehood, which, of course, there is a where, where there is a connection. Um, the Palestinians do the same thing. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and so on and so forth. This is the way in which uh, modern identities are constructed. Modern identities are transformed from either being religious or, or whatever into modern nation-state nationalism. Uh, and so th this is what happens with the Palestinians. Uh, it has to be understood, however, that the blows that the Palestinians received, um, the great revolt that they launch against the British in the 1930s, their expulsion of, of the majority of Palestinians from the country in 1948 helped to mold and shape an identity that was already developing. As is often the case, conflict, uh, trauma uh, often uh, 
uh, uh, shape and change uh, identities on a mass basis. It's also true for individuals. Yeah. So, so it may be true that the that the contemporary nation of Palestine, the imagined community, the, is is has been formed in part through resistance to the project of taking away uh, the the country, um, but. It is also true that, as you say, every national identity is a recent construct. And in fact, you know, uh, if we apply the same standards to, you know, there were no Israelis, um, the, it's incredible the, the changing of the names, right? Not only the changing every Israeli leader, changing their European surnames to sound more biblical, uh, the changing all of the names in, the, in, the, in Palestine, this massive project of giving everything a Hebrew name. Well, I mean, you can say two things about this. The first is that this issue of the construction of identities and, and, and imagined communities is universal. Um, it w- if, you, if, if you were to apply the same standards, there would be no Lebanese, no Iraqi, no Turkish, and so on identity, which is not to say there were not states there before, but the, the Ottoman state was not a Turkish state. The Qajar state was not an Iranian state. Uh, even the Egyptian state, which goes back you know, to pharaonic times, uh, had all kinds of different forms of identity. So uh, the reconstruction and the, re, uh, uh, the manipulation, if you want, of pre-existing identities is universal. Um, the other thing to say, however, is that in this case, uh, what you see is a project of renaming and taking over, which is unique to settler colonial uh, projects. I, I live in New York in an island called Manhattan, which happens to have uh, a, a Native American name. Uh, but I live in a state called New York, named for the Duke of York, James, who later became James the uh, First, or was it James the Second? One of the Jameses. That's 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 what settler colonial projects do. All of Australia, all of New Zealand, uh, all of Canada, all of the United States, and all of Israel um, has uh, named and places and rivers and mountains and so on, some of which reflect the original naming, but most of which are imposed in a new language and reflecting a new culture, the culture of the colonizer. Yeah, and and I I also wanted to dwell on this because, uh, you know, a big part of the project of the creation of modern Israel is, I think, what's called... uh, you know, memoricide or, you know, the, the, the destruction of the memory of, uh, of what was there before. Israel, um, you know, a, a big part of it is trying to create the impression that there has been a continuous Israel for 2000 years. <laughs> let's not, let's not mention, let's not go back to the, uh, or very recent origins of Zionism. I mean, again, unlike New York, uh, in Hebrew, people called Neblis Shechem. So these are names that exist in the Bible, and which in some cases are then reprised in modern Hebrew. But in most cases, most of the destroyed Palestinian villages, which are replaced by Israeli settlements or by forests or whatever, um, you have, as, as Meron Benvenisti writes about in, one, in his book, um, because his father was one of the people who was assigned by the new Israeli state to rename everything. In Hebrew, in most cases, what you have is a complete obliteration, memoricide, as you say, of the existing Arabic names, which had been used for millennia, um, and some of which are based on Hebrew names, some of which are based on Canaanite names, some of which are based on other other names, or earlier languages, earlier those of earlier peoples. 
Um, and that is part of a process, you can call it memoricide, you can call it epistemicide, a process that colonial powers engage, settler colonial powers can engage in everywhere and always. I mean, uh, Don Leary used to be called uh, Kingstown. Uh, Cobb used to be called Queenstown in Ireland. Um, the English did the same thing. Wonderful play by Brian Friel about this called Translations, where he's talking about how English surveyors are coming in and giving new names to places that have Irish names. Uh, the same thing is happening uh, in the case of Palestine and North America and elsewhere. In, in, the, in, the, in the Palestine case, of course, in some cases you are talking about actual biblical names being reprised, uh, but not in most cases. Common story about the founding of the State of Israel is that the Palestinians were in 1947 offered a state and declined it and thus uh, created their own problem. Perhaps you could respond to this particular pernicious uh, myth. Right. Well, I mean, the, the Palestinians always relied on the terms of the mandate for Palestine that was given to Britain by the League of Nations, and which said that the mandatory power was supposed to work towards self-determination. Self-determination in Palestine at any time between the British conquest of the country in 1917 and the handover of the problem to the UN in 1947 would have entailed a Palestinian Arab majority state. That was self-determination. Every other state under mandate received such independence. Only Palestine was exempted from uh, what one of the articles of the Covenant of the League of Nations said was the whole purpose of the mandate system. So the Palestinians said, yo, we were supposed to become independent. We're the majority. We should have a country of our own. If there's a Jewish minority, fine. It was only 35% in 1948, by the way, after waves of immigration. Uh, and, and, and the United Nations simply ignored all of this. It ignored its own charter. The UN charter talks about self-determination. Self-determination would have meant the majority ruling or the majority getting the majority of the country. Instead, what the United Nations, under the impetus of the United States and the Soviet Union, which wanted the creation of a Jewish state and only cared about that, basically divided the country up, giving the one-third minority more than half of the country, including most of the land. Most of that land was Arab-owned in the area that was allocated to the new Jewish state under the 1947 partition plan. So the Arabs rejected a plan which denied their self-determination and which gave most of their country to a minority. Uh, it, it's inconceivable that any people would have accepted giving up more than 55% of their country to a minority. I mean, imagine if someone comes along, tries to establish a new state in the United States and says, we're going to take 55% for this minority. Most Americans would probably not go along with that. And most Palestinians did not go along with the partition plan. Most Arabs, most most of the people in the world probably would have objected had they not been under colonial rule in 1947. Mm -hmm. I, and, and it is also true that the uh, that I think many of the Zionist leaders have made it fairly clear that, that they intended to use this as a stepping stone, right? Partition is being what's being offered now, but this is not the end of the project to build a Jewish state in Palestine. No, and I, the, the military planning, the, the various military plans that the um, Zionist militias um, laid out uh, in the months before uh, partition came into effect in 1947, uh, in November, 19, November 29, 1947, uh, uh, sorry, was adopted in November 1947, and then was implemented in May 19, 
1848, most of the plans um, that the Zionist military leadership uh, put together uh, were dedicated to taking over areas that were actually allocated to the Arab state under partition. Areas like Jaffa, the city of Jaffa was supposed to be part of the Arab state, areas along the road to Jerusalem that were supposed to be part of the Arab state, and areas in other parts of the country that were supposed to be part of the Arab state. So expansion into, for strategic reasons, but also uh, for expansionist reasons, uh, was part of the plan uh, from the very beginning, the moment even before partition was adopted, but right up to the moment uh, that Israel was established as a state in mid-May 1948. Uh, Israeli forces that become at that point the Israeli army, Israeli forces are advancing all over the country by 1948. Cities like Jaffa and Haifa have been overrun, their populations expelled, 60, 70,000 people in each case. Um, smaller towns, uh, Bisan, uh, Tiberias, overrun, their populations expelled. The Arab neighborhoods of West Jerusalem, maybe 30,000 Arabs lived in West Jerusalem together with a much larger number of Jews, uh, overrun, their population expelled. All of this in areas that were supposed to be part of, of the Arab state or were supposed to be part of the Jewish state, but where the Arab population was supposed to be able to live in peace. Um, now, this is part of a war that was going on, but it was, a, it was a lopsided war between a modern army backed by the United States and the Soviet Union that were arming it and supporting it politically, diplomatically, and financially, and between a disorganized and weak uh, Palestinian uh, uh, resistance uh, to this takeover of their country. Uh, it, was, it was no contest. By the time uh, uh, the State of Israel is established in 1948, and the Arab armies finally move, um, uh, the Israelis have basically crushed Palestinian resistance um, and then are able over time in a very difficult uh, struggle to defeat uh, the various Arab armies, of which really only two were serious uh, contenders, the Egyptian army and especially the Jordanian army. And, and over the course of the next several decades, I mean, Israel does engage in, you know, as you say, you, you, this is a hundred years war on the Palestinians and um, there are successive wars expansionist wars there's usually a, a, a pretext of uh, of why the war a war has to be waged but it seems to always involve a little bit of additional territory coming under uh, uh israel's control i mean in 1956 israel attacks egypt together with britain and france in 1967 israel attacks egypt syria and jordan with the support of the united states i go in in great detail into the fact that israel was in that the United States was convinced, first of all, the Arabs wouldn't attack, and secondly, that if they did, they would be crushed. So Israel is in no danger of elimination or annihilation or a new Holocaust, even though many Israelis believed that and many people in the United States were conned into thinking that that was the case. It was essentially a preemptive war, uh, not even a preventive war. The Arabs had mobilized, but they had, in fact, they, they were incapable of winning that war. Uh, according to what American intelligence and American military assessments uh, at the time uh, indicated. In 1973, Israel was attacked by Syria and Egypt. That, was, that starts as a defensive war, but it's a defensive war in a situation where Israel is insisting on holding on to occupied territory, and Egypt and Syria are fighting a war solely to liberate their occupied Sinai Peninsula and occupied Golan Heights. They're not fighting a war to destroy Israel. They're not fighting a war to reverse the results of the 1948 war. So this is a defensive war in Israel's part. 1982 is another uh, a war which Israel launches. There had been complete quiet on the northern border 
for 11 months when Israel attacks Lebanon in 1982. So most Israeli wars, with this, again, the exception of 48 and the exception of 73, uh, 56, 67, 82, are essentially Israeli wars of expansion or aggression uh, with very, obviously, obviously there are important pretexts for them, um, but uh, they, fit your, they fit your description exactly. <laughs> yeah, and even 48 and 73 are wars to defend territory acquired uh, under questionable legitimacy. <laughs> exactly. Israel was supposed to have over 55% of Palestine under the partition plan of 1947. Uh, they end up uh, with uh, over 70% by the end of the 1948 war. So it is an ex- it ends up being an expansionist war. They take all of the Galilee, uh, they take uh, Jaffa, uh, and they take much of the rest of the Negev and much of the rest of the country. 20, 22% of the country remains in the hands of the Egyptians and the Jordanians at the end of the war. 78% is in Israeli hands. And so since 1967, then, uh, when Israel took over the uh, West Bank, uh, the Palestinians have been living under this continuous state of military occupation. Exactly. Well, I mean... It can be argued that what happens to the Palestinians who remain inside Israel, a couple hundred thousand, 150 to 200,000, um, is occupation. They're under military rule uh, from 1948 until 1966. The Palestinians are under uh, martial law. They cannot move without permits. So Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel have their lands taken away under various laws that are passed, are unable to move. Um, secret police, the, the Shabak, uh, uh, controls their actions, their movements, surveils them, uh, and so on. Um, it, it is an occupation of of of, of a country that that uh, that has a lar- an Arab population of, of the Arab Arab parts of the country at least, um, and all of the land that is taken in this period mo- is, is Arab land. Um, it, it, in 1948, Jewish ownership of land was about six percent. Six percent of the land of Palestine was owned uh, by uh, 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 either individual Jewish owners or uh, by uh, agencies of the Zionist movement. Um, they basically steal the rest after 1948. Uh, uh, anyone who had left the country is described as an absentee. Their property becomes quote-unquote absentee property. Um, and everybody who is forced to leave, the 750,000 Palestinians forced to leave what becomes Israel in 1948, uh, are deprived of all their property. Their, their fixed property, uh, and their mobile property, their furniture, their rugs, their books, their homes, uh, in addition, of course, to their lands and their businesses and their bank accounts. I mean, everything is stolen. Now, you are in this book, uh, I, I, some readers might be surprised by how critical you are of uh, many Palestinian leaders over the course of the year in their uh, efforts at at, at negotiation. But one of the things you point out is that actually one of the reasons that there's been a kind of uh, uh, one of the real challenges for effective Palestinian leadership and resistance has been that there's been a long uh, program of, uh, uh, in fact, assassination, deportation, uh, jailing, of uh, every effective Palestinian leader. Right. Um, they, they, they killed as many as they could of the good ones. Uh, they left a couple of few, miser- a few, a, a few miserable characters whom were either uh, 
not noxious, not not considered effective. Um, uh, Palestinian leadership um, was very very flawed. Um, it, the elite leadership of the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, uh, fail, in my view, failed miserably. Uh, they were perhaps facing an impossible task. Uh, they had the British, the League of Nations, and a very well-financed, well-organized, well-motivated Zionist project to deal with. They had, they had support of Arab, Arab public opinion, but the Arab countries were under colonial rule. And so the Arabs couldn't do very much uh, in the 20s and the 30s and into the 40s. Uh, so they were, they were facing an uphill task. Nevertheless, I think they performed very poorly. And I argue in the book um, that that was partly because of the class nature of this leadership, um, its lack of democratic roots, um, its a failure or fear of mobilizing the population in certain ways, um, and a variety of other failures. Um, there were people who, by and large, didn't understand international politics. Uh, very, very few of the leadership and even fewer of the population were familiar with European countries or the rest of the world, didn't speak foreign languages, as against the Zionist movement, all of whose leaders came from Europe or the United States and were native Americans, native Russians, native Germans, native uh, Europeans who were part of the political culture of Europe, who understood that political culture, spoke the languages, they spoke Russian, they spoke German, they spoke French, whatever. Um, Abba Iban is a perfect example. Um, but all of them, Golda Meir grew up in Milwaukee. Um, these are people who understood Western political culture because they were part of it. They understood how to make that system work and for them in a way that Arab leadership in Palestine simply did not equip them. So uh, they were facing an uphill task. But I think, as I argue in the book, that they, they nevertheless performed poorly. Um, I would argue that the same is true to a certain extent for subsequent leaderships. Um, the PLO... Uh, had some successes, but it had many failures. Uh, and I go into some of them in the book. Um, again, some of the failures are a function of their lack of understanding of certain aspects of the international arena. Uh, others are, are, are a result of, of, the, the, of a variety of failings. I go into them in the book. But, um, but it is also the case that there has been this uh, long-standing attempt in the United States and in Israel to... Uh, uh, basically make Palestinians completely unpalatable and impossible offers and then to characterize them as uh, unreasonable rejectionists unwilling to make compromise when they won't accept the offer. Right. I mean, th th that's that's a, a trope that, again, goes back to, to Abba Iban. Um, never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, there weren't very many opportunities. I suggest that there might have been one or two. I talk about the 1939 white paper. Um, it was a very limited opportunity. The Palestinians, in my view, were very foolish uh, to fail to accept it. Um, th there might have been other opportunities. I was involved in the negotiations at Madrid and Washington with an Israeli delegation in which we tried uh, to achieve self-determination and statehood. And that was something that was systematically denied us by the ground rules laid, by, laid down by the United States at the behest of Israel, which same ground rules ended up governing the Oslo process later on. Um, so there was no opportunity there, it turns out. Uh, I argue in the book, and I've argued elsewhere, uh, that the maximum that would be uh, offered, has ever been offered to the Palestinians, uh, is some form of autonomy under Israeli sovereignty and complete and absolute security control. The only control of the borders and the airspace, uh, the, the, the land, 
the water resources uh, is, is in the hands of Israel under all, everything that Israel is willing to offer under every Israeli government. Um, uh, I go into Yitzhak Rabin's shift uh, in, in his willingness to accept that there's a Palestinian people, in his willingness to negotiate with the PLO. Uh, but even uh, Rabin, in his last speech, made it very clear there's not going to ever be a Palestinian state. So self-determination, statehood, independence are ruled out by the American-Israeli ground rules, then and now, I would argue. So what opportunity are we talking about? You know, you can pick up your own garbage, but we'll arrest anybody we want, any time we want, torture them, beat them up, and drag them off to our jails. What kind of, I mean, what is that? Uh, anybody who resists this situation where we are the dominant people and we make all the laws and you obey our military rules, um, that, that's not a very good deal, actually. Yeah, I, I, that that seems critical, and I want to just dwell on it, which is that, um, so it, it is the case then that the United States, whatever talk there has been about a, quote, two-state solution, what has actually been on the table for the last 50 years consistently has never involved a concession by the United States and Israel who kind of negotiate together. Um, uh, uh, the concession that the Palestinians should have anything that we would consider to be equivalent to a state in the sense that states are states. Now, the United States, the United States talks the talk, but it will not walk the walk. It will never say this outcome has to include complete and absolute Palestinian independence. It will never impose that on Israel. It will never lay that on the table as the outcome that has to be uh, reached. Uh, it basically it basically defers to Israel always and in every circumstance. And no Israeli government, you know, there are some that came closer. Rabin came closer. Uh, Ehud Olmert came closer. Uh, but none of them would have would have accepted the idea that Israel would give up its security control, that Israel would cease to control the borders, that Israel would cease to, in fact, be the only sovereign power. I mean, if you don't have your own army and your own borders and your own economy and your own ports and your own airports and your own airspace, you're not sovereign. You're not independent. You are a dependent subunit of a larger sovereign in, uh, state. And that's that's all that Israel has so far been willing offer. And the United States has never uh, pushed it uh, uh, to, to, to do anything more than what Israel is willing to do. The deference of the United States to Israel on these issues is limitless. Yeah, I forget which Israeli leader it was who said, well, they can have, uh, they can call what they have a state or they can call it fried chicken, you know, who, who you know, what, we don't care what we call it as long as uh, what we care is, you know, the relative balance of power. Um, well, just to just to conclude here, you've talked about the you know the role of the United States in in ensuring the continuing denial of Palestinian self determination. Um, I, I guess you know your your book is a, his, a historical account, not a you know not a forward looking or, or perspective uh, how to solve the conflict guide. But um, but it does seem to me that the implication there is that uh, altering. U.S. public opinion and the and U.S. public policy is pretty critical if we are ever going to see any uh, movement towards the Palestinians actually getting, after a century, uh, the right to self-determination in some part of their former country. Well, I mean, I, I think I think you put your finger on something absolutely crucial. If we look 
at the political map today, we see the United States putting its large thumb on the scales in favor of Israel in every circumstance, in the United Nations, in terms of arming it, in terms of financing its, its military to the tune of four plus billion dollars, in terms of a huge river of tax-free 501c3 donations, which fuel the settlement movement, fuel the aggressive uh, uh, stealing of Palestinian land, and, 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 and on which Israel floats. Um, the, the amount of money that goes to the United States is not just what taxpayers are paying. Uh, it includes also people not paying taxes uh, uh, to, by contributing to 501c3s that are doing things like supporting the Israeli army. Friends of the IDF is a 501c3, um, as are m a multiple uh, institutions that support settlements all over the occupied territories. Um, that, that, that's, the, that's the situation in terms of, you know, on the ground. Uh, if you look at it theoretically, and you understand Israel as in some respects, both a nation state and a national project, but also a settler colonial project, um, United States and Europe are the metropole. And without them, uh, this project is gonna, would have enormous difficulty. Um, that's why Chaim Weizmann went to the British and managed to sell them on the idea of a Jewish state in Palestine. He understood that you needed a sponsor, a grand imperial sponsor. It was first Britain and eventually it became the United States. Um, so what happens in the United States is crucial. Um, and one of the interesting phenomena in the last decade or so, maybe a little longer, is that you're beginning to see a shift in some parts of American public opinion away from blind, uncritical swallowing of any nonsense that the Israelis put out, any kind of propaganda, to a more nuanced, more critical, more informed understanding that there is a Goliath, which is Israel, and there's a David, which is the Palestinians, and it's not the other way around, that the Palestinians are under, under, under occupation, um, and that Israel is denying them their rights. Now, this is not a majority view in the United States by any means, but nobody thought that way 50 or 30 or even 20 years ago. Today, you have a dozen, two dozen Congress people who express views uh, that go quite counter to the established false narrative, uh, which the leaderships of both the Republican and the Democratic Party are still completely committed to. This is new. This never happened before. Today, you have American campuses, literally dozens of them, uh, where the students have voted in favor of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is a symbolic uh, step, but it's an indication of a shift in public opinion. Uh, you have independent media which are talking about things that were, it were for, forbidden. You could not show or say certain things most of the time about Israel and the Palestinians. Um, the mainstream media still uh, is terrified, as your own experience with The Guardian indicates, of saying certain things, um, whether it's television, uh, the networks, or whether it's uh, the, the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, or whether it's Reuters and, 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 and AP. But, uh, non-mainstream media and social media are much more open. And most young people don't know the New York Times from a hole in the wall. They don't care about Fox or CNN. Uh, that's, not, that's, not where they get their, that's not where they get their information. And so there's a much freer flow of information. And I think that has, that has dislodged a large uh, number of, 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 of uh, fixed ideas uh, in the minds of younger people. And, and that's an important shift, I think, for the future. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that uh, that, that the some of the dynamics of the conflict are more accurately understood. Um, but I, but a lot of the history that you that you lay out in the Hundred Years' War on Palestine is very much still 
buried history. I mean, I think people really don't grasp what Palestine was, what the Zionist enterprise was, how how the situation uh, came about. Um, I mean, every every part of the title and the book itself is dedicated to challenging the false received version of that history. Um, this is not a war between two peoples uh, on a basis of equality. This is not France and Germany. This is a war on Palestine. It's not just a war waged by the Zionist movement in Israel. It's a war waged by Britain, by the United States, by the Soviet Union, by Britain and France uh, on the Palestinians. Um, it's not just, you know, is the, the renaissance of the ancient Israeli state. It's a project which involves a national, uh, a, a pro it's a national project with a link to the Jewish, the ancestral Jewish link to, to the land of Israel. But it is also a settler colonial project by its own description and by, by comparison with any other settler colonial project. You can compare it to Ireland and you see all the parallels or Algeria or whatever. Finally, what the Palestinians are doing is not engaging in terrorism. They're engaging in resistance, whether one likes their means or doesn't like their means. Um, and, and, and I think that each, each, each part of the title of the book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine, History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, is a reference to one or another aspect of that, of that uh, 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 challenge uh, to the received version, the false received version of history. When you when you said that the Palestinians are not in, engaging in terrorism, I, I think an important point there is that the various means of resistance have been denied. The past. I mean, I, I, you, you know, you're very critical of uh, attacks on civilians and and, and such, and uh, uh, but uh, but but at every stage, you know, the the the, the possible ways for Palestinians to uh, fight back have been have been constricted, and we have to understand that even the things that horrify us come out of that. Right. Well, I, I, I think I think there's another point to be made. I mean, I, I argue in the book that various forms of armed action, including especially attacks on civilians, are both horrific and immoral and very importantly, politically uh, counterproductive. Um, and especially in this context, I go into this in some detail at one point in the book. But it has to be said that slaughtering civilians is slaughtering civilians. When Israel kills 16 children and five women in Gaza using 2,000 pound bombs and hellfire missiles, if you don't describe that as terrorism, and you describe the death of an Israeli child or an Israeli woman or another Israeli civilian as terrorism, this is Orwellian language. You are simply using the word terrorism as a bludgeon to uh, 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 demonize Palestinian resistance. Whereas somehow the murder of, of children in Gaza, 16 kids were killed in these attacks. Five women were killed in these attacks. I heaven knows how many other civilians were killed. Uh, maybe, maybe a dozen militants were killed. I don't know. Uh, I, I think that I think that Islamic Jihad has announced a number, uh, perhaps a dozen or perhaps more. But 30 or so civilians were murdered. If that's not terrorism, then the word has no meaning. And this happens every single time. We talked about there were 240 civilians killed in one of these attacks a, a, a few years ago. Uh, each each time the toll is equally lopsided. Why is this terrorism? These attacks on civilians. If, if you use the same measure, I have no problem with the use of that term. But then you have to use, you have to describe the use of hellfire missiles 
and F-16s and, and heavy artillery um, in the same way. I, I, I go into this in some detail in talking about the attacks on Gaza, not the most recent ones, because the book came out in 2020. Uh, go into the kind of weapons that are used by Israel, the artillery, the missiles, the, the aircraft, the helicopters, and the indiscriminate nature uh, of the weaponry uh, being used against a tiny population, uh, sorry, a population of a couple of million people in a tiny area. Um, if that's not terrorism, I don't know what is. Um, but of course, the term is only applied to the Palestinians. Uh, somehow, Ukrainian resistance is not terrorism, and Palestinian resistance is. I, I, I repeat, I think the killing of civilians is wrong, is immoral, is a violation of international law. But if that's true for the Palestinians, certainly it's true for the Israelis as well, on a much larger scale. Well, well, and we only have to look at the, uh, I think, 2018 um, Great March of Return, right, where it was a peaceful protest uh, at the at the wall. Palestinians, you know, kind of symbolically trying to cross back into the land from which they were expelled, um, and just and just uh, sniped, you know, just with live live ammunition, uh, just shot down in the hundreds, in the thousands. Uh, medics, journalists, uh, disabled people, children, old people, all just systematically shot. Now, that's the attempt to lodge a peaceful protest. The most violence there was they set, set some kites on fire. I mean, you know. Right. Well, this is, this is, this is not new. Um, I, I'm now working on parallels between British colonialism and other places, starting with Ireland and Palestine. And one of the things you realize is that the methods that the British used um, were essentially the use of terrorism against the, the population, colonized populations, whether the Irish or others. Um, and the British actually taught this to the Israelis in the 1930s. All of the earliest leaders of the what becomes the Israeli army, uh, Moshe Dayan, Yigal Alon, Yitzhak Sadeh, and several others, were pupils of British counterinsurgency experts who taught them how to murder captives, who taught them how to kill civilians. Uh, as part of British counterinsurgency doctrine, um, and the idea that you have to cow the natives um, goes back to even before World War One, um, and it was it was imparted directly by the British in the 30s to Jewish militias, Zionist militias that were recruited to help the British put down the Palestinian revolt. Uh, and every single early commander of the Israeli army went through these courses and was trained in this way. So this this these these methods. Uh, are not new. They're the methods of colonial powers everywhere and always. Um, go back and read Julius Caesar and what he did in Gaul. <laughs> well, I, I hope people pick up, uh, up the book. I think they'll be surprised by the, uh, perhaps by the element of autobiography that is in it. Uh, you, you know, you weave together the history of the Palestinians with the history of your own family and you have the, all the, this remarkable first-person accounts of the 1982 war in Lebanon where you were in uh, Beirut. We don't have uh, time to get into all of that uh, sadly today but hopefully it'll give people a uh, reason to uh, dive into the hundred years war on palestine professor holiday thank you so much for joining us on current affairs today thank you so much for having me The Current Affairs Podcast is a product of Current Affairs Magazine. If you are not subscribed to Current Affairs Magazine, visit currentaffairs.org slash subscribe today and get our glorious print edition. The Current Affairs Podcast is released regularly every week on patreon.com slash currentaffairs. Thanks for listening.